Hello, you're watching Global Investor on Business Day TV. I'm Simon Brown. Gary Boyson from Rand Swiss joins me this evening to guide us through all the latest news on global markets. And later in the show, we'll be joined by Adrian Seville from Canon Asset Managers to discuss their global champions portfolio. Well, that coming your way shortly. First, though, a quick look at what's been making headlines. Amazon has purchased online pharmacy Pullpack for around $1 billion. While the announcement cost pharma sector investors $19 billion, Amazon gained about $5 billion in value. Pullpack has pharmacy licenses in all 50 states, giving Amazon the ability to ship prescriptions around the country. This move makes Amazon a direct threat to the over 400 billion pharmacy sector. Company CEO Jeff Bezos is already in the process of creating a healthcare company, along with JP Morgan and Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. In the banking sector, Deutsche Bank's US subsidiary failed the second part of the Fed's annual stress tests. This due to widespread and critical deficiencies in its capital planning controls. Failing the stress test means Deutsche Bank will need to make substantial changes and will not be able to make any distributions to its German parent company without the Fed's approval. Deutsche Bank's peers Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley were not unscathed. They have been ordered to strengthen their balance sheets by freezing dividends and share buybacks. And deals involving media companies, including the bidding war for Rupert Murdoch's 21st Century Fox, helped drive worldwide merger and acquisition activity to new highs in the first half of 2018. He has more on that. We're only halfway through the year, but already a series of mega deals, including the bidding war for 21st Century Fox, has seen the global value of M&A activity hit $2.5 trillion. That's up 64% year-on-year, making it the strongest period since records began in 1980. The fact that money is very cheap, and certainly that is a, a really big factor in supporting the level of, of M&A, but I think there are other, other factors at, at play here too. Now, first of all, there's been some really big deals as well, um, and, and that's one thing that's really skewing uh, this data. Much of those eye-watering sums were paid by media conglomerates looking to strengthen their position in an increasingly crowded market. So far in 2018, their deals have totaled more than $320 billion, six times as high as the same period last year. Another big driver has been divestitures by large corporations. Earlier this week, General Electric announced a sweeping breakup plan to divest $20 billion worth of assets. What would be quite interesting is to know to what extent a fear that uh, the cost of money is going to rise um, had an impact on M&A this quarter. It's quite possible that firms wanted to get deals done because they're anticipating that money won't be this cheap for, for, for so long. But geopolitical risk could dampen movement in the back half. Already trade tensions are playing a part with US President Donald Trump using national security grounds to block chipmaker Broadcom's proposed takeover of Qualcomm. Gary Boyson from Rand Swiss joins me now. Gary, thanks for joining us on the desk. Before we get to some news, Friday was, well, quarter end, half year end, uh, S&P up 1.7, about 3%, including dividends for the year. In truth, frankly, not bad. I mean, it's sort of 6 or 7 if we annualized, it's not unreasonable. But after the stonking 2017, I think a lot of investors <laughs> are probably like, hey, who ate my return? Yeah, exactly right. So looking at 2017, you kind of had to, you know, almost the expectation management of, of every client <laughs> that was, you're like, yes, you've been invested in either, you know, the Vanguard S&P 500 tracker or you've taken an offshore portfolio. And yes, you're up, you know, over 20% in dollars, you know, 
do not expect this to continue because it can't. I mean, you know, if you look at kind of the inflation that we're getting in the U.S., I mean, yes, we understand that a lot of these companies, you know, maybe late stage bull market, you know, helping to fuel it a little bit, you know, tax cuts also putting mm-hmm. a little bit of a boost on earnings. But the fact when you've got low, low inflation, technical technological gains can only get you so far. And as those PEs start kind of re-rating higher, you know, there is cause for concern. And I mean, to, to see kind of the... When you see the, the volatility returning a little bit, to see you know stocks fluctuating backwards and forwards, it's it's kind of more return to normal than uh, than anything else. I think that's a good point. Return to normal and not to be sniffed at. You know, mm. when things go up in a straight line, it's nice if you bought on day one. Mm. Not so nice if you kind of came in. At least at this point, we're getting opportunities. Some stocks are coming back. You can mm. buy something. They move. We look a little bit clever. There's more opportunities. It is as you say. I mean, we've gone 108 days since the S&P 500 all-time high. I crept before we came on air. We probably had about that many highs last year. <laughs> Normality is kind of almost refreshing in a sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you get the sense of panic from investors as well. You know, oh, you know, the portfolio is down a little bit, portfolio is moving up a little bit. But if you actually look at kind of the straight line for the year, it's not, it's not terrible. I mean, as you say, a couple of opportunities presenting themselves and I think what maybe has people concerned is there's so much of this return is also just coming from Amazon, which is, well, which is un- un- unreal. And I mean, you know, you look back though at even 2017, and I mean, when you were looking at kind of the halfway point where we are now, um, yeah, I had to do an exercise for a client where we were looking at just the FANG stocks and how much they contributed to the overall, you know, kind of performance of US markets. And it's significant. And I, I mean, we've got to understand that the, the, the kind of tech boom is what's driving the, these US markets at the moment. And, you know, kind of the, the, the more traditional counters, you know, your Procter and Gamma, your kind of, you know, like consumer staples are really suffering, you know, the oil and gas as well, even with the higher oil prices, haven't recovered to to levels where they used to be. So this is very much a tech and consumer driven, driven rally that we're seeing in the US. Yeah, you mentioned Amazon. They bought PullPack. We talked about that in the intro for about a billion dollars. Um, PullPack essentially delivers prescription drugs uh, via the mail. They're in all 50 states. Uh, nice little business. Uh, billion rand deal, billion dollar, which is truthfully a little bit small, but pharma stocks got killed in the process. I mean, I, 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 frankly, I can see why you would be scared of Amazon. But I mean, is it, is it you know, Amazon, and we've talked about it before, is an absolute beast. Pretty much everything they've gone into, they've had some... Some, some hardware that perhaps hasn't been a storming success, but they, you can see how they can really take this business on. And 400 billion rand dollar business, this is real. It is, and if you look at it again, it's gonna be the potential for Amazon to roll it out to their clients and, and the idea of them, them you know, delivering the, the medication just about for everyone. So if you look at you know, kind of the Facebook deal that we saw when it bought WhatsApp, everyone was saying, oh, you know, per subscriber that you're buying on WhatsApp, you know, that's a crazy price to pay for anything. Uh, but then you know, suddenly you see sort of 30 million subscribers turn into 1 billion subscribers very, very quickly. And I think that's, that's kind of the, what you're buying into when you, you know, buy into the concept that uh, you know, Amazon enter, entering kind of the pharmaceutical and, and pharmaceuticals in the sense uh, you know, more you know, drug delivery, dr- drug logistics, which is what, what Pullpack does. Uh, that's, that's where they're going to take the business. Now, if you kind of actually do some digging, you listen, I mean, and the competitors are not necessarily the big farmers. So it's not Pfizer and, and that that yeah. you, you're really competing against. It's the Walgreens Boots Alliance. It's the Rite Aid, uh, CVS Health, for example. It's, it's kind of the, the, the pharmacy outlets that you, you should be concerned about. Now, if you kind of listen to the CEOs, I'm sure they, they're talking their book, but they, they're kind of pointing out that, that the pharmaceutical business is a lot more complex 
takes than just logistics. I mean, you, yes, you go to a pharmacy to pick up your pills, but there's a lot more that goes into pharmacy that you know, perhaps Amazon hasn't looked at uh, you know, in enough detail. Um, again, you, you go back to Amazon's track record as well. And uh, in 1999, they actually they tried this before, where they, they moved into the, the you know, I suppose, what, what you call pharma logistics sector. And they ended up selling it to, to uh, Walgreen Boots Alliance, who, who eventually closed the business now, I think, in 2016. So <laughs> it's, you know, it is a difficult space. And, and I think the, the declaration that Amazon is moving there, it sh certainly it, it should be a major concern. And I think you will see a, a repricing of a lot of those, those uh, you know, uh, pharma outlet uh, type companies. But, you know, I think this is, the, the game is far from over. And I think, you know, to just plow all the money into Amazon at this stage and, and ignore the rest of the kind of the retail distribution sector and to ignore Walmart as well, which I think we talked about last Fair point. time. We absolutely did. Yeah, Walmart uh, also had a, you know, from kind of the, the rumors on the street, uh, Walmart also had a bid in full uh, pull pack and uh, Amazon kind of beat, beat them in the price and managed to get in there. But, you know, it, it remains to be seen how this, uh, how this deal is going to spin yeah, out. Take nothing away from Amazon. This isn't a straight line, you know, dead mm. cert. There's a, a lot of complexity there. With complexities, uh, Tesla finally get into their <laughs> targets, doing 5,000 Model 3s in a week. I've got to be honest, I didn't think they would get there. I mean, they had to at some point, I suppose. The problem with Tesla, yeah, by all accounts, great cars. Mm. Um, by all accounts, a great slash slightly crazy CEO. <laughs> My concern is, I mean, is it an investment case? I mean, are you putting clients into it? Is it on a recommended list? It no, it's not. It's not on a recommended list. We haven't, we, we've got clients that hold sure. it against the recommendation. <laughs> but, uh, but I mean, that's the nature of stockbroking. So it's, uh, it's, it's not one that we all hold in managed portfolios either. And, and the concern has always been around the valuation. Yet, I, I, I love the story. No, we so want it to succeed. Don't, don't, don't get me wrong. I, I listen to every single uh, Tesla earnings call that comes out. And I do a lot of research into the company. I just am not yet convinced to buy. Because, uh, as, as you said, 5,000 Model 3 cars. I think they produce 7,000 cars in a week. Yeah. And I think the Ford CEO got on Twitter and said, yes, we also do 7,000 cars per hour. Per hour. <laughs> <laughs> and it just shows the, 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 the scope and the, and the difference. And I mean, you, know, you kind of listen to Elon Musk and I mean, you know, he is kind of, you know, uh, I mean, I don't know, famous, infamous for, for hitting targets as well. I mean, yes, maybe on the, on the production, it's been a, a little bit backwards, but, you know, he'll go and bet Australia that they can't build, you know, giant batteries and, 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 then, and then deliver. Now, you know, and, and one of the, the criticisms that, it, that he always puts out on the earnings call is, you know, what well, Tesla's growth is, is parabolic. I mean, it, it's, it's kind of taking off. And, you know, if you're trying to say at the end of the second quarter, we're going to deliver this many cars, you know, if you're out by a couple of days either way, it's going to make a massive difference to the number. So you, it's very difficult to predict these things. So, you know, kind of we'll, we'll make our estimates. And I think he's now saying by, by the, is it next month, next year, yeah. he'll be up to, up to, up to 6,000. But, uh, you know, it, it's very difficult. And kind of, you know, you, you've got to look at the, the, the story in, in, a, in a wider context. Um, and I think one of the concerns, though, the, one of the concerns that I've got to, got to mention around the stock as well is the way that they've hit this 5,000 uh, Model 3 target. And it's one of the reasons I think we're a little bit concerned. So in the last earnings call, you, you had him kind of saying, you know, we've got a very, they call it the alien dreadnought, which is the, the machine that builds the machines. And he was just saying, just be, you know, at the moment, we, we've been kind of all focused on automating everything. And what we've done now is we've realized we actually have to take a step back. We have to look at this and say, 
you know, like I think the example he gave was it's a piece of fluff that sits on top of a battery. And he says, in the past, we, were try you know, we spent a huge amount of money trying to develop a little robot to lift this fluff off and put it on the battery. Some jobs are just better done by humans. You know? <laughs> There's and, hope for us still. And, 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 and that was one of the examples. So they've, they've kind of right-sized it, but it's not kind of in the, the old Tesla model of you know, build a giant automated you know, self-thinking machine. It's, it's kind of like they, they you know, to, to, I don't want to say it, but I mean, they, they essentially cut corners to make this target as well. I mean, there's sure. talks of you know, converting car parks to extra production lines and all sorts of things. And I mean, this is obviously because the stock's under pressure. He's already sort of issued an open social media challenge to all short sellers that they're going to burn on, on, on Tesla as well. So we're not short Tesla, we just don't own it. The point is, he did it. Whether he mm. had to do some fluff or not, quickly to loop back to Amazon before we go to break, mm. uh, European supermarkets, Tesco, Caro, I think it's Caro 4, I'm not sure, maybe you. It's strategic allowance, not much detail, but seemingly there's going to be a sort of a purchasing agreement. And this makes sense, mm. and particularly Amazon's obviously not as big in Europe, but it's there. But sort of hooking up in some places, not so much on the distribution side, mm. and this can maybe get some pricing down and help compete against the, the online. Yeah, absolutely. And if you look at uh, Tesco, I mean, e even you know when I was in London ten years ago, I mean, we had our groceries delivered by Tesco, you know, to your door. I mean, it was all done online already. And it, in, a, in a sense, you know, online retail in terms of your, your kind of grocer in the UK is a lot further ahead than than, than you would expect in South Africa. But uh, looking at, it, I mean, it makes makes uh, perfect sense. These are both, you know, kind of the juggernauts on each each of the different economies on the continent. Carrefour, you know, the largest uh, Tes uh, Tesco, at least the uh, the largest retailer in Europe at least in, in, in the, the UK. UK. And uh, yeah, and to, and to kind of combine that buying power, it's something that they've talked about for about three years now. And uh, I think it's, it's all hopefully going to benefit the consumer in the end of the day as, as you know, lower costs will hopefully yeah. drive through lower prices and all thanks to competition. Yeah, and to your point of earlier, it's, it's this, 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 you know, technology, this isn't technology, can actually take us quite far. And hence we're seeing for a bunch of reasons, crazy inflation. Short break, when we come back, we'll take a look at Canon Asset Manager's Global Champions Portfolio with Adrian Seville. Stay tuned. Welcome back. You're watching Global Investor. Still with me in studio, Gary Boyson from Rand Swiss, joining to discuss the Canon Asset Manager's Global Champions Portfolio, Adrian Savoy. Adrian, thanks for joining us on the Thank desk. You. Next kickoff, we chatted was a month, maybe six weeks ago. I think you were at an airport somewhere. And, and you were saying before we came on, that was your sort of your passive space. And now you're at this is the other end of the curve, which is, is the active space. And you're it's almost being agnostic. And you're saying to the investor, you make the call, which or the blend that you want, and, and we can help in that space? To, to us, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, we think many people get caught in the middle. Um, and it's, you know, sort of trying to be all things to everyone. You land up with a portfolio that often looks very much like the market and incurs uh, active fees. So you get index <laughs> performance with active fees and the net result is disappointing. Um, so we, we build at Canon Asset Managers what we call a barbell approach. And on the one uh, end of the bar are portfolios that are passive, uh, they own the underlying asset classes through indices. Now, there's a place to, I think, be um, intelligent about the way you build indices, so perhaps replacing a market-weighted index with an equal-weighted sure. index, um, but then getting all of the fees out of the portfolio process. And then right on the other end of the barbell is this very active uh, suite where 
we build a portfolio to look different than the market. You should expect different than market performance. Um, and if we do well, we will earn our different than market fees. <laughs> and, and highly concentrated. The one thing I noticed, I mean, yeah. typically when I chat to, to these sort of funds, it's anywhere, I don't know, 60, 70, 80, 100 plus sort of stocks. Mm. You're coming with 30. I had a uh, chatting with someone from Vestec a week or two ago. They had 42, and I thought that was concentrated. Yeah. 30 stocks, high conviction, high concentration, uh, go big or go home. You know, I wouldn't say it's go big or go home. Uh, this is a very carefully constructed, well diversified portfolio across industries, geographies, currencies. Uh, the companies that we invest in are well established. You know, well-funded, well-run, and uh, we acquire those businesses at good prices. The fact that it's a concentrated portfolio results in us building and owning a portfolio that we know what's in there. Fair point. Uh, yeah. You know, you're hard-pressed once you're into 30 or 40-something to be able to name what you own. And if you are in 30 or 40-something, you've often diversified away all of your company-specific risk. So we are, by design, concentrated, and we know what we own. You know what you own, and you leave it for the client. Gary, would you go so concentrated? Do you and your segregated? Yeah, we do, we do go that. And one of it, I suppose, is also just, you know, especially if you do have segregated portfolios, I mean, it's, it's the fees as well. You sure. can't, you, can't uh, you know, sort of track 500 stocks in a, in a portfolio. The, the, your minimum balance has just become ridiculous. But, uh, but yeah, I'm interested maybe to ask, uh, you know, with the, with the level of concentration and, and as you say, you know, the depth of understanding you can have in those individual companies, obviously managing kind of at, at arm's length, uh, you know, managing at a distance like, like, like you guys, I assume, are. Mm -hmm. It's very different from running a portfolio in the, local, in the local market where you can attend results presentations, you go for lunches with CEOs, that, that kind of thing. How do you, you know, can you take me through a little bit of the investment process and, and how that, that differs from perhaps a local strategy? Our investment process starts with top-down, which is uh, using a set of factors to sort of screen out businesses that aren't of interest to us, and that might be because of liquidity, um, uh, the company's track record, balance sheet structure. So there's a, a, a range of factors that will immediately take our investable universe from 10,000 down to something more manageable. Um, and the process then, you know, once we're into the arena of identifying uh, a set of companies, I think one of the attributes of Canon's portfolios is that we, we truly define ourselves or describe ourselves as investors. You know, we, and I don't, by that I don't mean we buy to hold and never uh, review the position, but the turnover in our portfolios translates into holding, average holding periods of, in our international portfolio, global portfolio, 10 years. Um, and that allows us to really get to know the businesses that we're invested in well. Um, and sure, you might not get to uh, have lunch with the CEO, but I'm not sure if any uh, uh, New York investors or Wall Street investors are having lunch with the CEO of BlackRock. Mm. Um, so the fact that you are more remote in South Africa, I don't think that that gongs us out. Uh, perhaps it gives us a distance or a perspective, which is a vantage point. And then we have access to the same data suites, the same sell side analysts, and uh, the same company conferences and research. And the tenure holding period, what that would imply to me is that you find a quality company um, and you care about the price at the purchase point. Thereafter, you're largely agnostic to price. I mean, Procter & Gamble, big holding, under pressure, if anything, that's a buy. Inversely, if it, if it runs hard, you might lighten just for waiting purposes, but you're not yeah. going to say, well, it's expensive, let me take my money off the table. You're going to say, it's quality, I stay there. 
keeping in mind also that the portfolio we're describing here, we build for individual investors. Sure. And every time you transact in an individual's uh, portfolio, you're incurring uh, a transaction cost. Tax implication. Which is the client's money. Yeah. You know? uh, I want to come to a point that you were, you're talking. You mentioned that it's, it's very much that you, you start top down. Um, and you look, uh, what we are seeing, I mean, we're, we're you know, Turkish elections this weekend, very left winner. We've got uh, uh, President Trump and uh, on, off, or seemingly on trade wars, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Are you uh, taking a more cautious or more nervous view, or is this to your mind perhaps opportunity, or, or just look at different areas? There's some stocks in the portfolio that have, uh, I think, been clearly victims of uh, Trump war. BMW is a great case in mm -hmm. point, where BMW, you can now buy the business on a six times earnings multiple. And it's quite <laughs> staggering given uh, the performance of the business, its return on asset, return on equity, profitability, the fact that China is now its largest market segment. Um, but uh, investors have taken a very, very cautious view. I think in a bolder portfolio, we would probably add to BMW at this juncture. It, but it's a diversified portfolio. So if there are uh, trade wars or you know, if Turkey goes pear-shaped, we expect some part of the portfolio to hurt while, whilst others will be compensated. So there's a defensive component that's actually doing really nicely in the portfolio. Uh, if you look through one of the holdings, uh, SoftBank, which is the uh, yeah. Japanese uh, listed holding company. Its largest asset is Alibaba, um, and Alibaba is having a fantastic time uh, despite uh, Trump's best efforts. So this really is, you know, when we talk about diversification, it's not just names, it's uh, uh, diversification across currencies, industries, geographies. You mentioned geographies, and whenever I get these fact sheets, I usually get a very pretty picture telling me the geographies. And I usually mm. think, okay, so Apple's America, except yeah. it's not. I mean, yeah. y y yes, some of it is. SoftBank, as you say, is, is a Japanese company, but they've got American assets. Mm. They've they got Chinese assets. Yeah. You actually said to me before we came on, you actually look through to the currencies, because that gives you a truer reflection of where these companies are generating returns. I exactly. If you buy Snamspa, for instance, which is the Italian natural uh, gas uh, energy business, you're getting Euro earnings, it's a Euro client, it's very much uh, Italian. But if you're buying uh, a SoftBank or BMW, uh, SoftBank has got some uh, Alibaba in China, it's got some Sprint in the United States, BMW is global revenue, Intel is global revenue. And for that reason, we peel away the mask of geography and look through to currency to know where our revenue is coming from. I think that's the, the essence of building a global portfolio. The last point before we, before we finish, I mean, when I look at your top 10, Procter Gamble, Nestle, uh, Swiss Re, BlackRock, BMW, some names that spring out me, some names, truthfully, more than half I'd never heard of before. And your point says, is that, you know, these companies you're looking at are not necessarily sort of global in the reach of footprint. They might not be the biggest. They might not be Apple. You're looking for the best. And that best one might be a small little business uh, in, in, a, in a smaller territory. Again, it goes back to quality rather than just saying, oh, we've got to own the Fangs, we've got to own the Teslas or whatever. It's finding the right ones regardless of size and location. I suppose as much as I desperately wish we had owned lots and lots of Fangs or maybe only Fangs <laughs> for the last couple of years, I think investing always is about just getting a couple of things right and it's about buying good businesses, good assets, paying the right price for them and letting time then do its magic. So yeah, I, 
they, they, they may not be the biggest, uh, they may not even be the best, but they are good. <laughs> mm. And owning this portfolio of good assets at good prices, we think you know, that makes for uh, a, a great investment. Gary, one of the hardest things must be as someone at the coalface is that time thing. We mentioned it before Adrian came on. Truthfully, your investors want to be rich by Friday, this Friday, and you've got to <laughs> say to them, this is a process. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting, but I, I certainly find it, I don't know how you, how you find it, but the, our offshore investors are a lot, a lot more sticky, a lot more relaxed as well. And I think maybe, again, it comes down to that distance. It's once you've moved the, the, the funds offshore, once you're invested in big, good quality businesses, you know, you, you can handle a level of volatility without panicking. You, you know, you look at some of the market caps, and I'm looking here, the market caps of these companies, you know, they, they're bigger than, you know, a sure. lot of top 40 components. <laughs> yeah. you know, some of them are bigger than the whole top 40 put together. And that's, that's kind of, I suppose, it adds a, a level of, of, of safety and a level level of comfort to, to, to investors that are looking to invest offshore. We're out of time. Adrian, my favorite quote, good business plus good price equals good investment. I like that. We'll leave it there. That's the show for this week. Thanks to our guests, Gary Boyson, Portfolio Manager at Rand Swiss, Adrian Seville, CEO of Canon Man Asset Managers. Thanks to you for watching. I'll catch you same time, same place next week. Have a good evening.